0: One week on marriage for all the married people here tonight. Um, no, but seriously, before we enter into it, uh, here's the reason we're doing, we should be doing way more than simply one week on marriage. And obviously there are a lot of themes all throughout the whole quarter on it. Is this, is at this point, everybody in this room will before they begin their career, have at least committed 16 years to preparing yourself for your career. The better part of 16 years, right? Um, your education, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you might think, like, again, uh, marriage is out in the distance for me. It's, you know, at closest still a couple of years off. It's not something I have to think about yet. Okay, you're spending six year, 16 years, the better part of 16 years, getting ready for your career, your marriage will have way more to do with the with whether or not you experience joy in life than your career. So 40 minutes tonight is like far, far, far too little. Does that make sense? There are a lot of really, really, really wealthy, successful people that are deeply unhappy because your marriage has much more to do with whether or not you experience joy in life than being wildly successful in your career. And that's why there are a ton of people with very, very low aspirations and very, very simple lives who are incredibly joyful and happy because they have a good marriage. Your marriage is going to do way more to determine what life is like for you, your sense of security, your sense of self, your confidence, your joy, um, than your professional life ever will. So we've set aside 16 years for preparing ourselves for our professional life. 40 minutes tonight is not near enough um, in terms of thinking about marriage. With that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to read from kind of two classic passages on marriage. They actually um, repeat each other. The first one is when marriage is instituted in the book of Genesis, when God creates man. And one of the first things He does is He creates marriage. And then we're going to read from Paul's letter when he talks further about it. So, I'll start in Genesis 2 and then skip to Ephesians. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper that is suitable for him. And then he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. I'm going to skip ahead to a letter that Paul writes uh, a couple of thousand years later to the church at Ephesus. And he says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have to say about marriage. And I pray that we would, um, you'd soften our hearts and we would be willing to be confronted and to learn from you about marriage. That you would give us hope for great marriages. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so tonight, if you saw today's email, maybe you didn't see it, um, um, the question is, how do you find the wand? How do you find, how do you know he or she uh, is the one? And we'll have, you'll have a very clear kind of set of parameters at the end of tonight where you'll just know like exactly how to diagnose that make a decision. It'll be really, life will just, it'll, all the doors will open and the path will be clear. Um, but here's how we're going to approach answering that question. We really are answering it, but it needs to be answered uh, in a fashion that maybe you hadn't thought about. You have to ask the question, the one for what? Right? And and I made light of this uh, on Facebook earlier today. Um, Jason Vandermur is made... He's very gifted in a lot of different things. But if you run a power running game at Stanford and you needed a left tackle, he's not the person you're looking for. Maybe if you need like somebody to play the three on an intramural basketball team or somebody to program something, then Jason's great for that. But the way you determine what people, uh, the way you find the right person is first you actually have to describe the task you're looking at the task that they're called to so if you need a programmer for your startup you don't go to the music school and watch a trombone player that doesn't make any sense right this should be registering like that That doesn't what britain just said doesn't make any sense if you need a public policy writer you don't go to the mechanical engineering department right you don't ask a preacher to do brain surgery that's foolishness right here's my point it's really simple maybe like too simple because y'all are but if you want to find the right person for the task The way you do that is defining the task. You have to define the task. The way you begin to answer the question, could this be the one, is actually asking the question, the one for what? When you define the task really well, actually finding the one is very simple. And in fact, the confusion over the purpose of marriage, what it is and its purpose, is the reason that marriage is getting killed. Getting married for reasons that are far beyond and way outside of actually the scope and the purpose of marriage actually sabotages marriage. And 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 I would suggest that the reason that the 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 conversation in pop culture and even in academia right now is is calling marriage kind of outmoded and it's outdated. Um, the reason that they're kind of calling quits on marriage is actually because. They don't understand the purpose of marriage, uh, and we have a lot of different places that we're all drawing from to concoct our understanding of what marriage is. Right? Uh, you're looking at your parents' marriage. You're you're looking at you're hearing things from culture. You're hearing things all over. And what we're doing tonight is we're consulting the author and the creator of marriage. That in order to understand it, the place that we have to go first and foremost and seek to understand marriage is to go to the one who made it. In Genesis 2, God sees man He says it's not good for him to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper that's suitable for him. And then He creates Eve and He performs the first marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Right there, God creates, He authors marriage. So that has to be the foremost, God has to be the foremost and significant source for learning about marriage. So, two things tonight. Very simple. What is marriage and what is it for? That's how you figure out the one. It's by defining marriage and defining its purpose. So the first thing is this, definition for marriage. The one for what? We're going to use a word. You've heard me use a lot, and we're going to fill it out during this first point. Marriage is a covenant. The formula of Genesis, which is repeated in Ephesians 5, is a covenant formula. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And the minor prophets are actually told that what marriage is, is it's a covenant with your companion. In Malachi 2. And here's our definition for covenant that we're going to work with. And we're going to fill it out from Genesis and Ephesians 5. It's this. It's two companions that bind their entire lives together. Every aspect of their living together. For the sake of something larger than both individuals. It's two people, two companions, who bind their entire lives together. And this is key. For the sake of something larger than both individuals. And what the Genesis formula teaches us is that that binding together involves two things. Leaving and cleaving. Right? First, it requires a leaving. Literally leaving your former primary social unit, your, primary, your former primary social identity, your, fr- your family, and creating a new social institution. And so the ma- marriage is a covenant in which you are saying no to all others. It is a, it is a declaration of highest loyalty to one person, which is mean, means you're saying no to everybody else. And it's a commitment that your deepest intimacy and your deepest life is for one person. And there are no others that get to carry your secrets the way your spouse gets to carry your secrets. So there's a leaving component. There are no other loyalties that can be held higher. If you have to choose between your spouse and your family, or your spouse and your friends, or your spouse and your work, or your spouse and your hobby, or even your spouse and your children, your spouse wins. There's a leaving aspect to marriage. But there's also a cleaving. You leave And you cleave or you join together in all the aspects of your life. What I mean by that is you join together physically. You join together financially, professionally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Everything that comprises you as a person is bound together and knit together. And what that means is once you're married, you never have a decision that is your own ever again. Ever again. The way I spend every moment... Of every day is Elizabeth's business. And she gets to make a call on it. Anytime she wants to. She. My calendar is no longer my calendar. It's her calendar. Elizabeth doesn't have professional dreams. And I don't have professional dreams anymore. We have professional dreams. And that's the only appropriate way to talk about it. That's what it means that our lives are bound together. That's what it means to be in covenant. And covenant is a word. That actually. It's the word of Scripture is the word of Christianity. If there's one word that summarizes kind of the entire story of the Bible, what it means to be a Christian, the center of it all it's the word covenant. Um, even more than love or even grace because covenant is actually the, the closest word we come to it in any other kind of English definition is steadfast love. Sometimes it's uh, translated that way. But covenant is the term that describes God's relationship to everything. And words that you might think are at the center of Christianity, like grace and love, actually are part of this term covenant. And covenant is how grace and love are filled out. And covenant is the, main things, the thing that makes words like grace and love enduring, instead of just short term. And what I want to do for a minute is kind of more clearly articulate exactly what covenant is, so you can see that, that in fact there are a lot of aspects of it That are different than what you might think. The first one is this. It's not a contract. And there's a lot of confusion over that. Uh, Some have sought to call it a contract. A lot of modern conceptions of marriage is that marriage is a contract. But covenant is much more than a contract. And the main thing, the main way it's very different from a contract is it's a lot more binding than a contract. It's far more secure than a contract. A contract really in no ways, approximates what a covenant is. Because a contract is a performance agreement. I have a contract with DirecTV, right? My contract says I'm going to pay $59 a month for a period of time or even in perpetuity until certain conditions are no longer met, right? And if the programming stinks and because the programming changes and it's kind of lame right now, then I actually have the right to void the contract, to pay a fee and void the contract, right? I can pay the fee and cancel it. A, A contract... ...is a legal performance clause. That's all it actually is. A contract is this... ...commitment as long as. Commitment as long as. As long as you perform... ...as long as you do your agreed upon duty... ...then I'll compensate you... ...but either party at any moment... ...can void the contract... ...usually with some form of penalty. Right? And that's become the contemporary model for marriage. Which again... It makes complete sense that marriage has become a disaster if we call it a contract. Because what we're doing is we enter into marriage and we think the purpose is for me to get happy, right? And so when you stop making me happy, I get to void the contract. Covenant's forever. Covenant vows go to great lengths to articulate the foreverness of them. It, it, that's why you in plenty and in want, Right? In sickness and in health, for better or for worse. Covenant is, a lot of times people aren't paying attention to the words that they are expressing in those vows. Covenant's far more binding than a contract. There's no such thing as upgrades within covenant. There's no such thing as voiding the contract. If you don't like it anymore, if they don't make you happy. So covenant is far more binding than Contract. And when we think about it and when the culture has thought about it as contract, that's one of the things that's destroying marriage. The other thing is, is covenant is far more passionate than romance. Because the other conception is, well, some people think, you know, it, it, it's a contract. Some people think, well, what marriage is, is marriage is romance. And if you, if you talk about it in too strong a terms, this kind of covenant commitment, then you're kind of emptying marriage of romance. And actually what covenant is is both more binding than a contract, but it's actually also more passionate than romance. Because what it is, and, and uh, what it is is it's saying that you're committed even if you're unhappy. I mean that is what covenant is, to permanently legal permanently and legally give up my rights as an individual for the sake of Elizabeth. And what we think is somehow that's going to steal the passion or the electricity of a relationship, right? But actually the exact opposite happens. Because I remember, listen for a second before you feel sorry for Elizabeth. Just hold off judgment. I remember being in love with Elizabeth. Just wait. Just wait. Trust me. Before Elizabeth, I remember being in love with my high school girlfriend. After her, I remember being in love with my college girlfriend. I remember feeling in love, and here's the, and it was electric, and it was powerful. And I am so glad that I'm not a slave to those feelings anymore. Because they're so flimsy. And so unsatisfactory, and so tenuous, and so transient. Because what happens is when you actually get what marriage is and you get to experience essentially a newer, richer form of passion that only covenant can give you, only this kind of permanent binding that can give you, here's what happens within marriage. It hurts more. It costs more. And in a way that you can never really experience in dating because the most committed, passionate dating still is not commitment. Dating by definition is we don't have to be dating tomorrow. That's how it's different. But what Elizabeth and I get to experience and get to continue to grow in richness and power is stuff that dating can never provide you. It's stuff that comes with time. And it's stuff that comes with doing life together. And it's stuff that comes with sacrificing for each other from chilling, deep vulnerability. From being weak in front of each other. And all inside of the context of looking at the other person and knowing you'll never leave me. The passion you feel dating. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's like 75% actually hormones and chemicals. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's actually not a sound guide on whether or not you should be with that person. It's not wrong. It's just not sufficient for, very, for making good decisions. I've felt it. I've been there. Being in love in that sense, nothing wrong with it. I would much rather take the quieter, longer, richer, firmer confidence and self-sacrifice that comes with time, that comes with life lived out together, and the full confidence that we're bound, that we're stuck. I'll take that four million times out of four million over being in love. It is so much better than being in love. Not disparaging being in love, just saying it's not sufficient for making really kind of any decision. In Ephesians five, which we're about to explore more in depth, it actually says that the model for marriage is Jesus' love for the church. That's Paul's main point. This is the climatic, I've said this before. This is Jesus' climactic expression of his love. It's in Matthew twenty-six, and it's on the night that he gets arrested, before he goes to the cross, and literally Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. This is. His purest, richest, most powerful expression of love. It's this. Loving the church is too hard. I don't want to do it. So what Jesus actually prays to God the Father. Going to the cross is too difficult. I can't imagine doing it. I don't want to do it. But I will because I'm bound to her. That's the highest expression of love the world's ever seen. That's actually what covenant love is. It's far more passionate than being in love. This is not love. I like you so I love you. Right? Oh, I like you so much so I love you. Okay, that's that's interesting for like 90 days. But it's mostly flimsy and schmaltzy and it's actually if if you define love that way, you're destined for divorce. It's also love is not I love you because it's easy to be with you. Okay? That's the relationship I have with the dish. Every time I go and run the dish, for the first hundred meters, it's easy to be at the dish, right? And then time sets in, I'm like, oh wait, I hate you, I don't want to be with you ever again, right? That's not love, that's just you amuse me and I like that. Okay? Here's what love is. I love you even though you're hard to like. That's what love is. I love you even though it costs me things that are really important to me. That's what love is. Love is two companions binding their entire lives together for the sake of something larger than either individual. And that takes us to the second point of what then is that thing? If it's two companions binding their lives together for the sake of something larger than either individual, what is that larger thing? What is the purpose of marriage? And before we get into it, I want to talk about two things that the purpose of marriage are not. And the one thing is, is the purpose of marriage is not what Tim Keller calls apocalyptic romance, which is what every Kate Hudson movie wants us to believe, right? Or I, Kate Hudson was the late 90s, early 2000s. Who would it be now? Like what type of movie? Somebody give me something. Huh? Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams. Yes. Thank you. The purpose of marriage is actually not to experience apocalyptic romance. I'm going to indulge myself for a minute and hopefully entertain y'all to read you what I think is the second most transcendent piece of literature penned by man behind Scripture, and that is the first essay of Chuck Klosterman's Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, where he articulates and makes this point better than I could. So y'all indulge me. This is like my favorite moment in RUF (laughs) ever. Literally, this is my favorite page and a half literature ever written, so I'm just happy to read it. Um... No woman will ever satisfy me. This is close Closterman speaking. I know that now, and I would never try to deny it. But this is actually okay, because I'll never satisfy a woman either. Should I be writing such thoughts? Probably not. Perhaps it's a bad idea. I can definitely foresee a scenario where the first paragraph could come back to haunt me, especially if I somehow become marginally famous. If I become marginally famous, I'll undoubtedly be interviewed by someone in the media, and that interview will inevitably ask, Fifteen years ago, you wrote that no woman could ever satisfy you. Now that you've been married for almost five years, are those words still true? And I'll have to say, oh heavens no, those are the words of an entirely different person, a person whom I can't even relate to anymore. Honestly, I can't imagine an existence without my spouse. She satisfies me in ways I never even considered. She saved my life, really. Now I'll be lying. I won't really feel that way. But I'll certainly say those words, and I'll deliver them with utmost sincerity. Even, those sentiments, even though those sentiments will not be there. So then the interview is going to undoubtedly quote the lines from this paragraph, thereby reminding me that I swore I would publicly deny my true feelings, and I'll chuckle and say, come on, Mr. Rose, that was a literary device. You know I never really believed that. But here's the thing. I do believe it, that no woman will ever satisfy me. It's truth now, and it will be in the future. And while I'm not exactly happy about that truth, it doesn't make me sad either. I know it's not my fault. It's no one's fault, really, or maybe it's everyone's fault. It should be everybody's fault because it's everybody's problem. But whenever whenever I meet dynamic, normal Americans, I notice they all seem to share a single, unifying characteristic. The inability to experience the kind of mind-blowing, transcendent, romantic relationship they perceive to be a normal part of living. And somebody needs to take the fall for this. So instead of blaming nobody for this, which is kind of cowardly, or blaming everyone, which is kind of meaningless... I'm going to blame John Cusack. <laughs> so what he goes on to do, I could read the whole essay, it's amazing. And this is written at a time when John Cusack movies were the rom-coms kind of de jour, as he talks about what he calls fake love. This notion that mind-bending, passionate romance, uh, mind-blowing, passionate romance, uh, is what love is. And... He actually makes a great argument that the most dangerous thing pop culture is doing is convincing people of that form of love. Like, violence in pop culture, that's not the problem. Whatever else is going on in pop culture, that's not the problem. But communicating what he calls fake love is the biggest problem. This is how he closes. I remember taking a course in college called Communication in Society. And my professor was obsessed with the belief that fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood were evil. She said they were part of a latent social code that happened that hoped to suppress women and minorities. At the time, I was mildly outraged that my tuition money was supporting this kind of crap. <laughs> Years later, I've come to recall those pseudo-savvy lectures as what I loved about college, but I still think they were probably wasteful, and here's why. Even if those theories are true, they're barely significant. The Three Little Pigs is not the story that's screwing people up. Stories like Say Anything, which is a rom-com from the 80s, are what's screwing people up. We don't need to worry about people unconsciously absorbing archaic secret messages when they're six years old. We need to worry about all the entertaining messages people are consciously accepting when they're 26. They're the ones that get us because they're the ones we try to turn into real life. I mean, I wish I could believe the bozo in Coldplay when he tells me that the stars are yellow. I wish I was Lloyd Dobler, the character from Say Anything... I don't want anybody to step on a piece of broken glass. I want fake love, but that's all I want, and that's why I can't have it. Mm -hmm. His point is this. Apocalyptic romance is ridiculous. It is. It's a cartoon that if you live after and live for, you're going to be wildly disappointed. Um, And in fact, it's not what you were made for in a lot of ways. The other thing it's not for, marriage is not, uh, its purpose is not to provide apocalyptic romance or to make you happier, or fulfilled. To make you happier or fulfilled. This is the way one theologian said it. Destructive to marriage is this self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primary institutions of personal fulfillment. That that's what they're for. That they are necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone that's just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, give it a while and he or she will change because marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we're not the same person after we entered into it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. The purpose of marriage is actually not happiness and fulfillment. The purpose of marriage is not to experience apocalyptic romance. And here's the reason that marriage is failing. This is the great irony. This is why it's failing in, in, in an increasingly secular culture. Is actually because this is what's happened. Secular culture, when it gets away from Scripture, has actually elevated marriage and made too big a deal out of it. That's actually what happened. I think what often happens is that people think the church or the Christians have made too much out of marriage. That's actually not true. Secular culture has made marriage into too big a deal. Because what they did is they handed it a purpose that it cannot sustain and it was not made for. We handed a purpose that it can't sustain it wasn't in, intended to do. And the great irony is that the reason that, that secular culture is angry with marriage is actually because they held it in too high a regard and it didn't live up to our expectations. We asked marriage to do what it cannot do and was not designed to do. Jason was not designed to be a left tackle. If we make him play left tackle, we will all be disappointed uh, with Jason being a left tackle. We would tell the world, you should never put Jason in at left tackle, right? The problem is not that he's bad at left tackle. The problem is we asked him to do something he wasn't made for. The reason divorce is skyrocketing, the reason marriage is broken, is because we've asked it to do something it was never made for. The Bible, on the other hand, in Christianity, actually pulls marriage out of the realm of the place where you find your completion, and your happiness, and your romance, which are things that can only be found in God, and brings marriage back down into the stratosphere where it was intended to be. The irony, people accuse the Christians, the Bible people, whatever, of holding marriage in too high regard, it's actually the opposite. The Bible relieves marriage of many of the demands and purposes that people want to lay on it. Christians should be people that say that marriage is not as big a deal as you think. You've made it into a God, and marriage makes a terrible God, like we said last week. The reason marriage is, the reason divorce is prominent and marriage is so denigrated is because you always end up hating the thing that you make into your God when you find out it's not a good God. So people get married to be happy, marriage can't do that. They get divorced and tell everyone to be wary of marriage. Saying, oh, don't get married, it can't make you happy. Okay, Of course Jesus, Of course, marriage can't make you happy. Only Jesus can do that. When you ask it to be Jesus for you, you're going to hate marriage. And you're going to tell other people to avoid it. So if the, if the purpose of marriage is not happiness or fulfillment or apocalyptic romance, what is it? Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 give us that answer. In Genesis 2, listen to how God talks about why He creates marriage. He says it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs a helper suitable. The way He describes the first marriage. The language is this, for someone to come alongside of man in doing something. Right? A helper suitable. What is it that he's doing? See, He doesn't say Adam needs a lover. Though that's actually a part of marriage, that's not, that's not the centrality to it. He actually says, Adam needs a helper. Someone to come alongside of him in performing a task. There's a direction, there's a task. He needs somebody who complements him in doing it. So woman's created and marriage is instituted for that task. And the task given in Genesis is... is uh, he tasks him with being fruitful and multiplying. And having dominion over the world. What he means is this, crafting a beautiful and just world and populating it. That's what marriage was made for. Making a beautiful and just world and then populating it. But of course the task got more complicated when sin entered into the world, when the world was kind of broken. But Paul crystallizes again in Ephesians 5 what marriage looks like now and its purpose now. He fills out the picture. Here he calls man to lay down his wife, uh, his life Uh, (laughs) Freudian weird crap going on there. Man's called to sacrifice his life for his bride. In the same way that Jesus lays down his life for the church. Setting aside your own interests in your life for the express purpose of doing what? Actually making her beautiful to Jesus. Guys, the text says that what marriage is for you... The fundamental thing it is about, is about making that woman beautiful to Jesus. That's your calling, that's marriage, that's all of it summed up right there. And marriage used for any other purpose will warp both you and her and your family. It is not about your happiness, it is about making her beautiful to Jesus. Women, you're called to accompany, accompany him. The word used in Genesis is to be his helper or his complement, his other half. The word "helper" is not a demeaning term; it's used actually of God in Scripture as well. It's a term of mutual vow, uh, of complementary mutual value. That you are unlike us in wonderful ways, and you're made to come alongside of us in performing this task together. And you see when when he's forced, right in the right best possible way, to be Christ-like toward you what's happening to him he's growing in character and in godliness as well so his purpose is to help you grow in character and godliness and guess what your purpose is is to make him grow in character and in godliness the purpose is actually to bring the love and the rule of the supreme goodness of God into this world especially within the new social unit you've formed and this is the fundamental thing what the Bible is showing us, is marriage has to be about something bigger than both of you. It has to be about something bigger than both of you. And literally what marriage is, is marriage is this. Marriage is, I want to go here, will you come with me and help me get there? It's about Elizabeth and I having something bigger than both of us that we're longing toward and moving forward forward. And us saying, let's get together and let's go there together and we'll help each other out. That's what marriage is. It has a goal that is bigger than itself that is actually outside of itself. And that's the only way you will not just survive but even enjoy marriage. And here's the great thing. God in all His wisdom and goodness has made romance and sex and friendship and laughter and happiness and joy all part of the process and part of the blessings of the process, but they are not the goal of the process. The goal of the process is urging one another on in love for Jesus and conformity to His character. Because and in order to get there, that's our common horizon we're aiming for and partnering to get to. And what that also means is part of the process, since guess what? I'm selfish and also Elizabeth selfish. Part of the process that God intends in marriage is fighting, vulnerability, forgiveness, disappointment, stress, friction, work. Those are just as much part of the process as all the fun things. The purpose of marriage is to urge each other on into Christ's likeness for each other, for your family, and also for the world around you. And what that means actually is this, is that the most important part of our marriage is actually the friction. Elizabeth and I have volumes of sweet moments. We have a lot of great sweet moments in our marriage. The moments where God uses her to work on me in the most profound ways are actually the places of friction in our marriage. Those are the most important parts. Because the places of friction are where my selfishness and my desire for glory bump up against her well-being and the well-being of our children. And it's hard. Because he, here's one of the places where she pushes back on me and there's friction created in our marriage and it's absolutely where God is at work and it's absolutely what's the best part of our marriage is. I want to justify myself by this job. I'm a people pleaser. I want everybody to like me. And so I can't say no. And, I, and I'll schedule I'll schedule one-on-ones at the goose from like 10 o'clock at night to like 2 o'clock in the morning if I could. Like if everybody asked me or, or coffee at Phil's, I would. What Elizabeth has to say sometimes, and it's hard for her to say, is "Britton, you have to come home. And we have to rest. You have to rest in Jesus. That RUF is going to be okay if you come home and be with your family and you tell students no." And she's right. And she's prying me away from my idol. And it's hard for her to say those things because anytime you get in between someone and their idol, things get crazy messy. But what she's doing, she's actually teaching me, she's teaching me how to be like Jesus to her. And that's the most important part of our marriage. It's more important than actually even the sweet moments. Marriage has to be about something bigger than itself. And if it's not, and this is why the world's rejecting marriage, is because we think marriage is about two lovers staring into each other's eyes, and you stare into them and you hope to squeeze life and meaning out of your lover. Right? I cannot give Elizabeth life and meaning, and she can't give me life and meaning. But what we can do is we can stand beside each other and walk towards life and meaning together. Marriage is actually made to have a Godward direction. That's its purpose. And what marriage is, is marriage is two sinners in need of grace. And so what we do, the way that gets worked out, that Godward direction... As we demonstrate grace to each other. We demonstrate it in the context of covenant. I've bound myself to try to give Elizabeth unmerited love, ongoing forgiveness. But it's not; those things are not just sentiments. I actually have a covenant obligation to be bound over to her. But the reason why is this. is so that we can see who God is. So that we can experience the freedom of the gospel. We can taste the freedom of the gospel in our relationship to each other. Marriage is always and always will be has always been and always will be about manifesting the sacrificial love of Jesus in the real world day in and day out because your spouse is going to be hard to lo- to live with, but you always love him i 'm going to serve you i 'm going to suffer for you i 'm going to forgive you because that 's what Jesus did for me, and it 's mutual it 's not just one sided. <clears throat> Elizabeth is teaching me every night at 11 o'clock what Jesus' love really looks like when she makes the girls' lunches. It's beautiful. She's tired. She's exhausted. She sacrifices her free time to come on campus during the week. When she could take a nap, when she could get things done, she's teaching me about who Jesus is. She's teaching me about who Jesus is, the way she serves our girls, especially when she chooses to forgive me. She's teaching me about who Jesus is. And our marriage is actually not just for us, I don't just benefit from the way Elizabeth does. I'm sure several of you have already learned about the gospel by watching Elizabeth or hearing about her. So your marriage is actually even bigger than just the two of you. It's a social institution. It's for the whole community. And what's happening in that process as we're working out life together is this. We're in the slow, messy, beautiful process of working out Christ-likeness in each other. And within our family and also in our community. I'll close with just a couple of implications slash applications. The first one is this. The language of finding someone that's compatible has got to go. It's ridiculous language. It's actually narcissistic in a lot of ways. It's either got to go or we've got to redefine it. Here's what one writer said. So how do you know whether you're compatible or not? It's one thing to both enjoy playing tennis, but how do you respond when a two-year-old vomits on you? How will you get along on two hours of sleep a night when you have a difficult baby? How do you learn that you're not how do you learn who they're gonna be when you find out you can't have children together? How will you work out together when the woman leaves the workplace to be a mother and changes cities for the husband? How will you react when her mother moves in for you to take care of her or when one of you is paralyzed in an accident? Few of us Really, no one will be able to assess our compatibility in the face of those kinds of challenges while you're dating. But these are the things that a lifetime of marriage entails. We're sorry if this is shocking, but compatibility better not be the key to marriage. This is the point. There's no way to measure compatibility. And the reality is, the worst place to try to measure compatibility is actually dating. Dating is actually the least trustworthy place to measure compatibility. Friendship is far safer context to measure compatibility because dating is a marketing campaign, right? Dating is you're luring something. You want someone, you want someone to like you. So literally what dating is is dating is real world Facebook, right? Because Facebook is not who we are. Facebook is who we want to be. Facebook only has our good moments and maybe even slightly over-exaggerated good moments and none of our bad moments unless there are bad moments in a funny way that endures to people, right? Dating is Facebook. You're putting on your best face to attract someone so that they'll stay with you because you all aren't committed, so you have to play the game, right? Friendship, on the other hand, actually is a much more trustworthy place to learn what people are actually like. Because friendship's not a marketing campaign. It's just people gathered around some common thing, some common idea, some common interest. And you're not acting like somebody else or somebody you think they'll like. You're actually just being yourself within that context. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't date. I, I'm just observing. that dating actually, we're least like ourselves in dating. We're much more like ourselves in friendship. If you want to measure compatibility and who people really are, You're going to make a better judgment within friendship than even within dating. And then at the same time, even within friendship, guess what you'll never know within friendship is you'll never know what they're like at 2 a.m. changing a diaper for the 97th day in a row. And that's mostly what marriage is. That's what it feels like at our house. (laughs) Those hard moments are most of what actually make up marriage. So then the question arises, what do we do, right, if we can't really gauge compatibility very well? Here's what you do. You look for someone who understands that marriage is a covenant and not a feeling. Who understands that love is covenant and not a feeling. You might not know much about them. But if they know that marriage is a covenant and not a feeling, you know a ton. Secondly, look for someone who thinks that the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus is the key to every relationship. Because if you find, here's what will happen. This is, a, this is the shocking moment of the night. If you find somebody that gets that love is not a feeling, but love is covenant. And if you get, find somebody that realizes the grace of Jesus shown to me gives me the capacity to forgive. And forgiveness is the heart and hope of every relationship. If you find that person, here's what will happen in your marriage. Mind-blowing sex. <laughs> Everybody uncomfortable now? Are you thinking, like, is he talking about him and Elizabeth, like, autobiographically? Maybe a little bit. (laughs) Because here's what's, because we are more than physical beings, we are spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical, all those things wrapped together. When we are bound together safely inside of that context, sinning against each other and forgiving each other, that's 7,000 times sexier than a great-looking body or lingerie. It actually really is. That's not sentimental. It's real. Because observing and enjoying the hard-won fruits of covenantal love is crazy sexy. It really is. Find somebody that gets that covenant is love and gets that forgiveness and grace of Jesus is the key to every relationship. Secondly, when you find out the bad things about your spouse... That's actually not a reason for running, right? This is what the culture tells us. Maybe your parents told you. You're going to find out things and there are going to be reasons to run. Okay, the bad things in your spouse are actually the reason for your marriage. We think that we get married because of the good things in them. If the purpose of marriage is Christ's likeness then the purpose of your marriage, the reason for your marriage, is actually the bad things in them. That's the place where you should go and get most invested in your marriage where instead of running because they weren't who you thought they were, you begin to dream who they could be. In the consumer approach, their failings are reasons for voiding the contract. In a Christ-centered covenant, their failings are the most important place in the marriage that you move into with the tools of the gospel, with truth and with grace, and you work with them towards Christ-likeness. The other thing is, besides the people pleaser, is I'm also lazy, which is a really frustrating combination trying to do ministry at Stanford. But it drives Elizabeth insane how lazy I am. My laziness is not a reason for her to run for our marriage. It's the very reason for her marriage to me. To envision and to pray and to urge towards godly diligence in me. That's why God set her in my life. Because I couldn't fight laziness on my own. And you see, only a covenant, instead of a contract, provides a place for both truth and grace to work together. Because within the safety of the covenant, Elizabeth can tell me the truth about myself, and it's not a threat to me, and it's not a threat to the relationship, because I know that she's still going to go to bed with me tonight and wake up with me tomorrow, so she can tell me hard things, and it's totally safe. And vice versa. So look for somebody... To whom you can say, I'm going there. I want to go with you. We can help each other out. The question is not, do I feel like I can love them? Of course you can't love them. The question is actually, can I live with their junk for the next 70 years? And the question is, is my junk the kind that they're willing to fight with for the next 70 years? You're actually not choosing the most likable person. You're choosing the person that you're actually cool fighting with and fighting for and fighting against inside of covenant for the rest of your life. That's who you're choosing the person you want to fight with for the rest of your life. You go into marriage with that, you know what? You're actually going to be happy and you're going to have great sex. If you go into marriage thinking, I've got to choose the person that's going to make me the most happy, you're going to be wildly unhappy and have terrible sex. You pick somebody you like fighting with, you're in a good place. If you go into the marriage with somebody you like fighting with, then actually you're going to come out on the other end whole, healed, happier. Because you've experienced actually the deep grace of God in Jesus. And you fight with the desire not to win, but you fight with a desire to be shaped by Jesus and shape your spouse into Jesus. So find the person who's resting in and wrestling with Jesus. Let's pray.